Hey, this is Sam. So you're about to listen to an episode I've just had with Ruth Jackson. So Ruth is a producer for the Unbelievable podcast, along with Justin Briley. She's also a youth worker. And you're going to see right from the get-go that Ruth is full-on. It's fantastic to hear Ruth share about her passion for Jesus and why she's a Christian and to talk about the, the, the reasons and the hopes and the desires that she holds within her Christian faith. I just want to encourage you that if you've left religion or you don't want to hear about God or you're sick of the stories, to still give this episode a listen. I say this time and time and time again, but it's so important that we understand why somebody believes something so we can better place ourselves within their shoes and see what life would look like if we believe the same things as them. I mean, this also helps us to highlight why we don't believe the same things as them and actually helps us to really settle into the rhythms and understandings of our own mind as we work through this journey of faith that we're all on, regardless of religion. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to When Belief Dies, a podcast honestly reflecting on faith, religion and life. Hey listen, I want to ask you to do two things. The first one is, would you go over to Apple Podcasts, search for When Belief Dies and leave us a five-star rating and review. Every rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps to boost the visibility and we want listeners like you to be able to find this show. The second thing is, would you consider supporting this show on Patreon? This show will always be an ad-free place, but your support on Patreon will enable us to do more and more over the coming years. So have a think, and if you can, support the show. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of When Belief Dies. Uh, my name's Sam, and today I'm joined by Ruth Jackson. Ruth, it's great to have you on the show. Hello, it's great to be on the show. So Ruth, I just thought it'd be really interesting to kind of get you on the show and to kind of hear about, um, yeah, all your work with producing unbelievable content and also kind of um, your your passion for, um, yeah, youth and the Bible and God and, and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic to have you here. Um, I guess to start off with, Ruth, would it be okay for you just to give us kind of like a good few minutes of your story of, of, of how you came um, to, uh, yeah, believe in God and how you came to be in the position you're in now? And yeah, just 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 run us through who Ruth is. Sure. If I speak for too long, do shut me up because I'm very much normally on the other side of the <laughs> microphone. So when someone gives me a microphone, it's a nightmare. I'm <laughs> um, if you don't mind, I might start, this feels strange, but I might start with my dad's story because actually that that feels like it sort of gives context to my story. So my dad actually grew up in Moss Side in Manchester, which I guess even now is quite a kind of economically deprived area, sort of fairly high crime rates and was certainly so when my, when my dad was growing up. And he grew up in um, a pretty broken home and was incredibly violent as a child. So at the age of um, about 14, he was kicked out of school uh, for throwing a brick at a teacher. He was in gangs and his kind of weapon of choice was a baseball bat with broken razor blades. So not not what you call a nice kid, I don't think, really. Um, but when uh, around the time that he was expelled, some Christians came to his estate and they basically put on a week of, I guess, what what you call mission, sort of reaching out into the community. And um, he'd heard a rumour that there was like free food and lots of pretty girls there. So him and some of his mates kind of went to check it out. Um, but they weren't allowed into the tent because they, they didn't want to get rid of their weapons. So understandably, they weren't allowed into the tent with their weapons. So they just kind of sat outside and ate cake and sort of chatted to the volunteers. And um, my dad was just really intrigued by these volunteers that sort of seemed to have the time of day and seemed to really care about this kid that no one else really cared about. 
Um, but he ended up that that year. He got, he sort of got kicked out of that as well because he ended up um, beating up one of the bouncers who was guarding the tent. <laughs> Amazingly, the same Christians came back the next year. And they, my dad went along again and they remembered my dad, which again, like completely astounded him. And this time he decided he would put his weapon to one side and he sort of walked into the tent. Um, And and I guess partly the kind of the love and care and compassion that these volunteers had showed him um, combined with what was being said in the tent, which was basically that there's a God who loves you. um, He cares about you. He's passionate for you. You've got a purpose to your life. And I guess um, for for someone who kind of his whole life been told that he wasn't going to amount to anything, he wasn't worth anything. um, Just, you know, people had run away at every opportunity and he'd run away at every opportunity. Um, Just just to be told that actually this messed up kid from a sort of dodgy part of town um, was worth something. It totally, totally changed his life. So he actually became a vicar in the Church of England um after about seven or eight selection conferences because clearly no one wanted <laughs> someone like him to be a part of the church of england um but yes yeah, so he sort of spent the last 50 years of his life sharing um god's love with people who are often kind of you know the people that lots of lots of lots of society would have ignored i guess um in inverted commas the outsiders the people on the fringes so um the reason i tell his story is because that was kind of the context of how me and my sisters grew up we were in a um we sort of always grew up on council estates um uh, normally in the sort of northwest but we sort of traveled around quite a lot um but in places where you know in our house we would have people who were quite broken sort of recovering addicts and things like that I, I just thought it was normal to have people like that in and out of our house and I guess without sort of knowing what it was I guess our family sort of had a profound understanding of grace this idea that actually no one no one was outside of the love of God. No one was too broken to be fixed by God and um, that his love extended for all. I think it was Rob Bell that said that if the gospel isn't good news for everyone, it isn't good news for anyone. And I guess that was kind of the informal mantra in our house that actually everyone was welcome. Um, you know, there was no one too far. So that was kind of how I grew up, like understanding. Well, not like, not even understand, just just thinking it was totally normal um, that uh, that. God let the outsiders in and and all of that. So Luke's gospel has always been my favourite gospel because it's, you know, it's the gospel for the outsiders, for the women, for the children, for the marginalised. Um, so, so that was kind of how I grew up. Um, and then I guess as having said all that, like God was, God was definitely real in my life and I definitely sort of saw him move. And I think I obviously didn't know my dad before his conversion, but hearing stories and sort of I guess seeing seeing him change even gradually as I was growing up um, and seeing people move in the lives of the people that were sort of in and out of our houses um, really had an impact on me. But he, having said that, I was a bit of a reprobate as a kid. Um, and so I've got a twin sister and I was pretty sort of malicious with her and would like bully her at school, but then pretend at home that I wasn't. So I remember there was a time where, um, yeah, we, we were at primary school in Manchester. And it was flipping freezing and I bit the dinner lady's daughter, um, but, prete- but pretended I hadn't done it. And we, we weren't identical twins, but we looked enough alike that you, you know, you couldn't, you often couldn't tell who'd done it. So they basically put us both in the playground Um I think we were about six years old, just in like a really thin coat. And they were like, until one of you admits who it is, like you're both just going to stand there. And um, it was so cold that in the end, my twin just was like, I'm just going to say I did it. So she sort of walked into the headmistress's office and said, I did it. And um, I just totally let her take the blame. And that was kind of 
that sort of epitomizes like what a bit of a terror I was. So I guess in some senses, I totally understood the love of God. Um, but I think it probably, I probably hadn't let the love of God change my heart at that stage. Um, and I think that, that, carried on to a certain extent into my teenage years I remember making a couple of my secondary school teachers cry by just not being very nice just like pestering them and taking the mix so yeah I was I like I would have called myself a Christian and I think at every opportunity I had I would sort of say the prayer just to like check I was in um and I would definitely have said that I had a relationship with God but I think I probably wasn't walking it I probably wasn't um yeah god certainly hadn't like changed my life and i don't know that from the outside you would look you would look at me and say she's a follower of jesus um i guess like one of the significant things to me what for me was as a young teenager so i think about 13 i went to something called soul survivor come across soul survivor yes been there a few times excellent so yeah it's kind of a charismatic festival um and it was an absolute game changer for me to start with, not necessarily in a good way. I remember just being completely freaked out because um, I'd never experienced any sort of charismatic stuff. I'd never heard of talking in tongues. I'd never seen any kind of, I uh, may, maybe I had, I just wasn't aware of like any kind of charismatic gifts. And, and suddenly as a teenager, I was sort of filled with thousands and thousands of people, many of whom were like crying or laughing or falling over and shaking and roaring. And I was like, what the heck is going on? Um, but I guess once I'd kind of gotten over the initial shock of what was going on, Mike Pilavachi, the guy that runs Soul Survivor, was so amazing at kind of explaining what was happening that, you know, a lot of the time it's kind of brokenness coming out and like external manifestations of what was going internally. Um, and actually that then became a, a really precious time for me going to Soul Survivor every year. It was sort of a time when um, I never had any of those kind of charismatic experiences myself, but, um, you know, I had amazing encounters uh, like of, of reading the bible going to seminars um like sort of hearing god's voice in the worship things like that so soul survivor became like a really key thing for me and and at about the same time as well um i was in a musical with um some christians um, so my whole family are all very musical theatre. My mum was a dance teacher. My two sisters are in musical theatre now. Um, but we were all in a musical together. So I was about 14. And there were three Christians in this musical. And um, when they found out that our dad was a vicar, they would come back to our house and have like little Bible studies. And um, again, I'd never really met. It was about the same time as Soul Survivor, but I'd never really met these Christians Christians who were like so charismatic and like so, you know, they prayed and expected something to happen. Um, it's certainly not like my age. And um, there was this one guy called Adam who wore like really strong prescription glasses and like we were doing a little prayer meeting and he opened his Bible and he took his glasses off and started reading the Bible. And I was like, what? why have you taken your glasses off? Like, can't you like you don't need them to see? And he said that God had healed him so he didn't need his glasses on anymore. Um, and I, I was like, what? That's absolutely mad. And part of me was like, well, if he's healed you, why do you need your glasses at all? Um, but just amazing that God had like given him sort of perfect sight to be able to read the Bible. And um, but just little things like that. And I remember they really challenged me because they like really lived and breathed their faith. And you could, unlike me, you could really see the difference that God made in their life. And um, yeah, so so that was quite a key thing. And then I went to university to study theology um, and I'd <laughs> so I ended up going to Oxford which is hilarious because like, I'm really not smart and I was definitely not like one of the smartest kids in my class or anything and people would have these like geeky meetings um to talk about going to Oxbridge and you know I'd walk past and just be like geek um 
and then I ended up going kind of as a bit of a, a, a as a bit of a joke and um, I broke my nose the day before playing sport so I went with like this huge this huge nose like two massive black eyes and I think because I was in so much pain and so philosophical um well and like definitely didn't think it was going to happen I was in like ripped jeans and a hoodie hadn't really done any preparation um everyone else had like briefcases and a full suit um but I, I was going to do theology and I was just like do you know what? I just I love theology and I love talking about God and we'll just see what happens and um remarkably I got in but I think partly that was because they thought I was like really smart because I would take quite a long time to answer things because because I was so much pain because of my nose um but anyway so I ended up at this at this institution just like surrounded by super smart people where I was definitely like you know fit out of water and I remember loads of people sort of warning me about um studying theology you know it would just like wreck my faith and all of that and I just remember thinking well if if it wrecks my faith and my faith probably isn't that strong to start with um so I sort of you know I kind of took on what they said but sort of took it with a pinch of salt um but actually there were a lot of atheist professors and um they really did challenge a lot of kind of my theology I, I certainly wouldn't say I ever lost my faith but there, there was stuff that was really challenged to the core um but I think actually that was a really good thing because I'd not been challenged in those areas before and I definitely came out stronger because of it I think one of the things as well that um I remember really challenging me was when I would go to church and like read my bible it felt like I was working and I remember just being like oh come on I don't want to be working like this is what I do for my degree I don't want to be doing it in my spare time as well but somehow there was like I think it was partly through talking to super smart people like Alistair McGrath and lots of amazing sort of Christian theologians who were at Oxford at the time um but also partly I think God just changed my heart and there was a, a real switch where actually um, it was the opposite, like actually reading the Bible and theology books and things like that um, for work actually began to feel like worship. So I began to sort of feel myself getting closer to God as I was studying more. Um, and just as like a quick example, in my first year, we had to do a Greek exam and it was on a Friday and on a Thursday it was like our student night. And um, I remember everyone in my college was like working and sort of really swatting up for the exam. And I was like, do you know what? I've done like a little bit of work. It'll be fine. <laughs> what was the worst that could happen? I'm going to go to church and just give it to God. And, um, you know, it's not like I hadn't done any work and I was expecting God to carry me through. I'd done like a little bit. Um, so I went to church and um, there's a guy called Simon Ponsonby, who's a brilliant sort of biblical teacher. And he just did a cracking sermon on a like little passage in Mark. And because he's a great um, theologian, he sort of did like a real expositional thing, looking at the historicity of various passages and sort of pulling bits and pieces out so I kind of went home thinking I'm so glad I went to that that was just like it really sort of filled my bucket woke up the next morning um Greek exam and one of the things you had to do was um sort of translate a passage and then sort of talk about the historicity of it and things like that open the passage and I kid you not the exact passage that he'd been expositing the day before was like the first little gobbit I had to translate um and of course that could be a coincidence but I think in that moment it felt like a real grace from God of like actually you know you honoured me by going to church first and uh, I'm going to honour you by making this really easy for you so that was pretty cool so that was sort of theology I guess in some ways my sort of faith was challenged intellectually but then sort of built back up again um, and then I felt like I was you know ready to go all, all over again um, but basically as soon as my faith as soon as I felt like my faith had been kind of put back together intellectually um I experienced like a really sad personal tragedy in my second year of university where one of my friends sadly took her own life and it was 
in some ways the first person close to me who'd died and and certainly the first person who'd taken their own life and I remember it just absolutely destroyed my kind of theology of a good God so I guess in some ways everything I'd put back together from this kind of intellectual um, disruption just like began to fall apart again from a kind of emotional perspective and just you know the classic questions of like why would God let that happen and um, you know what had she done to deserve this and all of that so uh, it all kind of fell apart again um, and I guess that was my first foray into apologetics not that I knew at the time that that's what it was so I, I felt like I kind of read every book and article and everything I could about suffering um, and I'd love to say that I got all the perfect answers and my faith was put back together completely again but I don't think it was and I think we kind of hold those tensions of like not really knowing all of the answers but knowing that God is with us and um, I will finish in a second I'm really sorry I, I told you not to give me a microphone um, <laughs> but just one moment that I think kind of cult, I guess holds my whole sort of testimony together but I think was really significant um, for that moment but I think has also been like such a key moment in my whole life um, as I sort of continue to struggle with these questions around suffering and things like that and walking through other people with suffering uh, particularly as a youth worker so like fairly soon after this friend had um, taken her own life I um, took a bunch of young people to a Christian camp and um, we we had an amazing time great week loads of answers to prayer and um, and you'd kind of think that would build my faith so I guess I went into it being really sad about my friend and really annoyed that God hadn't answered my prayers um, but yeah you'd think that sort of seeing all these amazing things happen to my young people would build my faith but it actually just did the opposite because I, I ended up getting really bitter and I was like God why do you care about them you don't care about me you don't care about my friend um, you know she battled depression for years and I'd been praying for her I was like you, my prayers just mean nothing I don't care so I sort of all in my head obviously because I'm English um so I took myself to the back of the room and was just like ranting and raving and um someone came over to pray with me I was like as if I want someone to pray with me I'm so pissed off with God like the last thing I want is this God who doesn't care about me to be like doing anything or saying anything to me because he's got nothing to say that I'm interested in um and this girl obviously completely ignored me not wanting to be prayed for and started reading from Isaiah 49 where it basically says um Jerusalem says the Lord has forgotten me um the Lord has um like abandoned me and I was like oh my gosh that is minus my expletives that's exactly how I'm feeling like he's totally forgotten about me my my work is useless um nothing I'm saying matters and then she carried on reading and it's where it says can a mother forget her nursing child even if that were possible I would not forget you see I've written your name on the palm of my hands um, and then it says always before me is a picture of Jerusalem's walls in ruins and I remember that like completely knocked my socks off because it was acknowledging that um that I was in ruins effectively that you know always before me is a picture of Jerusalem's walls and ruins but it was also acknowledging that I wasn't forgotten it didn't give me a perfect answer to the problem of suffering it didn't tell me why my friend had tragically taken her own life but it did show me that I wasn't forgotten and it did show me that actually like God cared enough to give me a bible verse that quite frankly is probably the only bible verse that would have like really spoken to me in that moment so I think people ask if I've ever had a like a has God spoken to you you know I've never had like a lightning bolt moment I've never had like I said like one of those sort of crazy charismatic experiences but I hold on to to moments like that where I'm like actually God in his grace has really spoken just words of encouragement that that meant such a lot in that time and actually I think are really good for kind of holding on to afterwards so I'm sorry that was about a 500 minute version of what you wanted to be like a two minute story but but there we go <laughs>
That's all good. It's really, it's really helpful. I think it gives, it gives me and the listener a really good understanding of your story. And that's what this is all about, isn't it? It's about hearing stories and, and reflecting and talking things through and no, it's all good. Um, okay. So I, I was, I'd be really interested to kind of hear which bits of theology you found interesting when you were at Oxford. Like were, were there like specific areas or elements or was it just the whole thing? What, what was it that grabbed your attention? Oh, that's a great question. Well, so Oxford's really interesting in that it is, um, I don't know how to say this without sounding rude. Um, it's quite, I wanted to say stuck in its ways, but actually I think traditional is probably a kinder way of saying that because it's, it's one of the oldest degrees that they do theology. And so I guess, understandably, they want to sort of keep it as as original as it has been. Um, so you basically have, have got three options. You can either do biblical theology you can do doctrinal theology or you could do world religions, but you can't really mix and match between them. Um, and you, so there's not much flexibility. I kind of wanted to do a bit of everything, um, which wasn't really a possibility. So I, um, I think because people had warned me about theology, I steered clear of biblical theology because I was like, I don't want someone to rip apart my Bible. Um, I mean, I'd love to do it now because I think I'm probably like mature enough to be able to grapple with some of those things. But so, uh, yeah, I did doctrine. Um, so lots of kind of what the early church thinks, the development of theology. And um, and I, one of the things I remember that really, really struck me um, and it was it was taught by Graham Tomlin, actually, who's now the Bishop of Kensington. He was my um, tutor for uh, kind of Reformation theology. Um, and he taught like a whole module on Martin Luther, who was um, 16th century reformer. And I just remember being absolutely struck. So was, I said before that there was kind of this understanding of grace in my house that actually no, like no matter how far you'd gone from God or no, no matter how broken you were, um, like God's love was big enough and reached all of that. But I guess I'd never sort of articulated that. And I suppose I, I, I probably wouldn't have known what the word grace meant before I went to university. I'm a very slow learner, so I've learned what grace was at 18. Um, but I remember hearing um, Martin Luther's kind of understanding of grace and the fact that he was a monk and he like tried and he tried and he tried to sort of earn God's um, goodness and love and righteousness. And that actually he sort of came just with open hands being like, actually, I can offer you nothing, um, but you give me everything. And I remember just being so struck by that, that actually it's not about trying. It's not about what we do. Um, it's just about coming with open, empty hands and acknowledging that um, it's all because of him. It's everything he does. And that was a bit of a, I mean, it's so obvious. It's the heart of the gospel, but that for me, I think hearing it articulate articulated like that was a bit of a game changer um but to be honest everything i found was really interesting i think i'm, I'm thick but i'm a bit of a geek at the same time so i actually i really enjoyed a lot of a lot of stuff alistair mcgrath big big fan of alistair mcgrath i loved him on your show um but yeah loved sort of reading stuff with him and he was the principal of my college at the time which was you know i got to like eat my lunch with alistair mcgrath which was just an absolute dream so yeah wow yeah that's um that's pretty cool um <laughs> Okay, nice. I mean, so I went to um, I went to Bible college and did um, theology and biblical studies. Um, so did it, it was all about the Bible though. So it was very much wasn't about um, other religions or, or doctrine. Did a little mm. bit of early church. Um, so I did a little bit of kind of like the Arius, um, Arius controversy um, mm. or heresy, or whatever word you want to use. Um, <laughs> talking about kind of Jesus not being God, but being kind of like God imbued by how they look at him rather than being actual god um which is really interesting and um yeah i found there's there's so much there's so much to theology so so many layers and depths i think a, a, a lot of the time people 
hear the word theology and just think oh it's just people making excuses up for something that they can't prove and i think yeah actually if you go away and look into it and try and work it through and understand it there's so much that is fascinating and exciting i think um alex o'connor uh, wrote a piece for i think premier actually talking about why theology is actually still important and um, because yeah so many non-christians think it's just useless but actually um i think even if you don't believe in god um a lot of the kind of uh, secular ideals that we hold within the west today are very firmly rooted within that sort of christian framework and narrative and, and that is you know rooted within theology and that kind of understanding of theology theology helps you understand why we are where we are today um, yeah for sure and and most of the people in my year were weren't christians and i remember initially just being a bit confused i was like why would you want to study this but yeah the, the more i kind of realized the depth of you know it covers some history language sociology there's just so many aspects that um, theology covers i think one thing for me as well was sort of going back to some of the original biblical languages and sort of seeing the meaning behind the text i remember i would i did a talk on suffering for my young people once i think they're about 13 and um, I did like a bit of an exposition of like a Greek passage and all of the um, all of the youth leaders were like what the heck are you doing what like they're 13 give it a rest and um, I was talking about John 11 where um, Jesus is at Lazarus's tomb and kind of unpacking what it meant when it says that Jesus wept and that actually the Greek word used there three times um, isn't it, it does say Jesus wept but there's also another Greek word that literally means um to snort like an angry horse in that sense that actually Jesus wasn't just upset that his best friend had died he was absolutely raging um and then um and I remember thinking oh flip I've really gone too far this time uh poor poor little 13 year olds and we did a kind of survey afterwards with the young people to say like you know what what were some of the things that stuck out on the youth weekend away and we were sort of thinking the games the activities they're eating marshmallows all of that and for most of them it was that Greek word of like Jesus being angry that really stuck with them so that kind of gave me a bit of a kick up the arse that actually we patronise young people so much and actually I think we should just give them good theology and let them break it down and one of the things when I was working in kids tv was that actually you need to age up so if you're trying to reach like a 12 year old aim the content at like 15 16 year old that because they're always going to want to like aim up so yeah that's interesting and you mentioned kind of working in kids tv and um, would you mind just kind of elaborating for the listeners sort of what you've done within kids tv yeah so um I, I sort of joined the BBC because I wanted to work for BBC Religion because uh, I just remember um, thinking I would love to kind of I effectively sort of put my theology degree to good use and I guess in some ways sort of distill some of these complicated theological ideas to the masses and help people to sort of grapple with some of the big questions and things like that. Um, so I got myself a job at the BBC just um, like being a PA to a random part of the BBC and sort of gradually worked my way sideways, always like pitching ideas at BBC Religion. And um, basically got sidetracked for far, four or five years um, in kids TV because it was the best fun ever. And um, yeah, ended up working on Blue Peter, which was just incredible. So got to do lots of amazing things, see lots of amazing things. And um, yeah, it was just, it, I mean, I can't believe I got paid to do it. It was hilarious. It was just like the best. You just got to make amazing TV with like your best friends. It was, wow. it was incredible. Yeah. Did you, did you take or steal blue peter badges that's what i want to know well do you know what i actually earned a couple of blue peter badges because um every time you appear on screen you get a blue peter badge oh wow so or every now and then they would be like oh we need someone to play this part or to dress like this or i remember um 
we did a show when um, Will and Kate, um, the princess and prince, got married um, all around weddings and things like that. And um, the costume lady had got a wedding dress that was absolutely tiny that wouldn't fit any of the presenters. And um, they were just like running around looking for anyone that might fit the costume. They were looking for children. They were like, right, Ruth, you've got the body of a small child. You can wear this wedding dress. So I basically had to get into this wedding dress. um, And we like posed in a church. I had to stare into the eyes of one of our cameramen who was dressed as a groom. And uh, it was just the most bizarre thing. We sort of had to stare into each other's eyes for like 20 minutes while they did all these different camera shots. And then they sort of coloured the dress in in different colours in post-production and talked about the fact that in, in Japan you get married in red and all of this. So that was one of the stranger things that I got a Blue Peter badge for. But um, but yeah, there were many fun times that I so I do I do have a tiny little stash of Blue Peter badges. But I have I must admit I have earned them rather than stolen them. So yeah yeah I'm I'm not sure I'd get any screen time. So I'd be stealing the whole way through. Um, <laughs> I think they're probably worth quite a lot on eBay as well. So if you ever want to kind of yeah look at some sort of um, alternative business, I guess you could begin selling them. Yeah. Slowly. Yeah, um, maybe if it all goes to pot, that's that's what I could do. I don't know that they're worth much without a bad card, though, which legitimises uh, them. Uh, and I think you have to be under 16 for that to be verified. So. Oh, God. Okay, never yeah. mind them. That's, that's useless. <laughs> Throw them away. There's no point having them. Okay, so kind of coming back on track a bit. Um, so with this sort of kind of idea of theology then and God and, and these sorts of, um, I guess, um, passions that you have for for God's word, um, how how do you how do you live that out day to day? Then what what does your kind of day with with God's word and with living as a Christian look like? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, I think because. I'm wired quite like heady. That's not to say that I don't have a heart. Obviously, I have a heart because otherwise I wouldn't be breathing. Um, But I sort of process things quite often through my head. And then it's often that like my heart will follow afterwards. Um, So for me, I I love worship. But for me, it's the words that get me rather than like the tune or anything like that. So, you know, crowning with many crowns, the potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. Most people are like, what? And I'm sat there like, Jesus. Um, So for me, I think this is this is so not for everyone and my husband's a musician and he's a creative and he's completely the opposite and actually my sister's a creative it's entirely the opposite but for me I love to be like sat reading the bible or doing like the bible in a year or something like that for like a good at least a good half an hour in the morning um like actually reading I'm holding my my bible like actually physically reading it and um like writing notes and um yeah so what I what I tend to do um is I follow Nikki Gumbel's Bible in the Year app and um, sort of will do all of that. But yeah, basically write write down any verses that kind of stick out for me. Um, and then I kind of tend to like pray through those Bible verses. And then I do um, the classic, because I still haven't grown up from this, the teaspoon prayer, you know, the thank you, sorry, please. Um, so I'll try and always say something I'm thankful for. And I try and always say at least five things, which to be honest, if you, if you try and list five things you're thankful for, it happens so easily, even in the midst of a pandemic and, you know, lots of rubbish things, there's always loads you can be thankful for. Um, so thank you. And then sorry. Um, yeah. And then please. And I tend to try and play, pray for like at least five people. So I'll often sort of flick through my phone and um, just pray for people that I know who are going through stuff or um, have kind of told me about situations that are really difficult. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 
I'd love to say that I do that every single day. That's that's my ideal. Um, but obviously, you know, sometimes I've got to record a podcast at six o'clock in the morning or whatever. So sometimes that goes to pot and then I'll, I'll try and claw back the time. Um, I also run a lot. So I think kind of that's when it's just like me and god time and there's no although i run with my puppy so there's there are i was going to say there's no distractions there are definite distractions because he just wants to wee on everything um but that like when i'm sort of walking or running with the dog that's generally a little bit more kind of creative prayer time um but yeah i think that's probably kind of my well you asked me how i lived it out i haven't answered that at all that's um so sorry go for it keep going it's good far too long um yeah so I guess that's kind of that would be like my quiet times and things like that um but then in terms of kind of how I live it out I guess um one one of the things is is like where we live so we live in Feltham um which I, I guess because of how I grew up and because of um, sort of my dad's story and I guess moving kind of from council estate to council estate and um really seeing God's heart for the poor, for the marginalised, for the broken. Um, I always wanted to live in a place where I could kind of live that out. Um, and so felt um, for us like that was a really big part of our decision to move here was um, I felt um, is an amazing place, but it's quite economically deprived. And um, there is a real kind of openness in, in the brokenness. That's so I mean, I didn't mean that to rhyme. <laughs> that was just a very happy coincidence. But so, you know, there are there are lots of that's not to say that rich people don't have problems. Of course they do. But I think a lot of the time if um it's slightly more on the surface in places like Feltham and people are just a little bit more kind of honest with um with their brokenness and with their difficulties. Um so we're part of this amazing church plant in Feltham that you know, runs a food bank and um, does lots of outreach in the local schools and things like that. It's still sort of very much in its infancy, um, the the church plant, but it's already done such amazing work in the um, in coronavirus and just really, you know, it's really kind of missional, um, but but not, you know, not kind of cringy missional. It's just like actually meeting pe- meeting people's needs. Um, so so yeah, I guess that's one of the ways that we sort of me and my husband try and live out our lives um biblically and yeah that's helpful thank you i think i I, i'm a massive fan of um being outside so i do loads of running and cycling and all that sort of stuff and um i started in bible college actually um just going for a run every morning got up at five and just went for like a i don't know four mile run and just carried on for ages and still do that so uh, there we go it's um weird what sort of habits take hold but um i think for me it's yeah it's going out into nature and being able to process things and work things through and whether that be listening to music or in silence or listening to a podcast whatever it is that you're doing to kind of help you um, become the most authentic you that you can be is is really important I think we all need that need that time um, so that's that's really helpful and I kind of guess then kind of just pushing you a little bit on on this kind of face stuff then um, I'd be really interested to hear kind of what what you think are the best sort of um, I want to say arguments for atheism but i guess kind of like what 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 do you think and this is something that justin asked me actually on on, on the show yesterday he said what would it take to convince me that god is real and i kind of want to ask a christian like what what would it take to convince you that god isn't real like is, is there is there mm. something that you would have to come across to, to realize that maybe the faith that you hold isn't actually rooted in god i'm not saying it's not but i'm just be interested to kind of hear your your your, your reflections on that if that's all right ruth yeah of course i mean i think for me i sort of touched on this already but i think for me the kind of 
um the question of suffering has always been the big thing and and from from my experience of my friends who've lost their faith that's often if not the only reason it was often one of the reasons or the trigger or sort of you know the beginning of the unraveling um and i think it would definitely be more of an emotional reason than a rational reason because i think having kind of studied theology and studied apologetics i know you can't 100 percent prove this, that god is true of course you can't um um but that for me there are kind of lots of sort of rational um arguments like the you know the moral argument the the argument from desire cosmology design aesthetics all of that they and, and then obviously personal experience they kind of cumulatively build up to there being a rational reason for it all being true but I think actually it's it's the kind of emotional stuff that often gets in the way and often breaks it down so I think yeah I think for me um it would be the question of suffering and I think the question of like why God let awful things happen so um a couple of years ago uh, we tragically lost our vicar who he just sort of suddenly died of a heart attack um in his kind of mid 50s was just on a run and literally just died and that was huge it kind of you know obviously really rocked the faith of our whole congregation i think from a personal level um you know i've i've had tragically since my friend um took her own life i've had quite a lot of bereavement in my life but i think that one in particular i was like god what are you doing this is like one of your this is one of your own like he was doing your work and um, had an amazing family who were also doing your work like what the heck so I think they're, they're definitely the questions that I'm going to be kind of asking when I come face to face um, with God but but certainly kind of the reasons for my atheism but I think actually I'm you know in in the middle of all of that I remember being really challenged by one of his sons who um, so they were all kind of like late teens when it happened and one of his sons is this amazing musician and we were at a kind of church service together and he was just um like at the front of this church service hands up in the air like saying you are good in the worship song and I was just remember being like how the heck can you say that your dad has just been like taken by the lord um and I guess but I guess the, like he has such like his son had such genuine hope and assurance that um that death wasn't the end that this this wasn't the end of the story that like yes it's horribly broken and really sad um but that's not the end of the story and i guess it's like um samwise gandhi says in lord of the rings that one day everything sad will be untrue and so for me like that's definitely the reason why like, if i was to be an atheist that would for sure be the reason but i think experience and um various things along the way have shown me that actually while it's still really difficult and i don't think there are answers for a lot of this stuff we have a god who refused to remain distant and i think that's what's so amazing about the incarnation is that like actually the god of time and space who you know that um graham kendrick song that says he flung his hands flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered uh, just you know, there's a, a, a line in the Psalms, isn't there, that says, oh, and he created the stars also. Um, but but that's the God who, like, came to be a vulnerable baby, like, covered in crap and, in you know, in a dirty, filthy place, like, with animals surrounding him in, like, a pretty scummy part of town, had to, you know, flee as a two-year-old and um, become a refugee and all of that. So I think, 
there aren't answers but what we have is a god who like comes into the mess and the brokenness and gets in there with us and weeps and rages that it's not right and tells us that it's not going to be like this forever yeah that's really powerful i think that's that was always a big thing for me is this 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 idea that god god has come to serve um we 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 as as humans and this is with very much within the christian framework i believe tell me if i'm wrong um but we 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 as humans have this innate desire to um essentially be gods and to rule and to reign and to be this sort of like um domineering um archetype of of of, of a king or a ruler or, or an emperor that is in charge of our domain right our lives are our domain and you know back in the day if we could we would rule other people we would rule villages cities if we could kingdoms and actually this entire kind of countercultural idea of, of a god that came to serve um and serve the the lowliest of society i think that's that's something that's really powerful i think you know I, i've i've um I've, I've been trying to ask quite a lot of people recently kind of what what, what was it about the christian story that began making people act in such a different way in the in, in the in the in the first centuries you know like looking after um infants mm. who had been put out for kind of like nature to just, just kill them so that people do that quite often which is, sounds really weird to us but you know you, you, you have a baby you can't cope with the baby or the baby's deformed or something you just leave it out in the elements for it to die and that for us just sounds horrific but that was quite a common practice in quite a few areas within the roman empire you know within the first century there, there, there are different accounts of people rescuing these children looking after them and it's a complete cost to themselves because these children could be deformed, they could need extra care, it could be really hard. These children might not even live that long, so it would be emotional pain as well. But there are these communities of people going out there doing this stuff, and it's like, well, why are they doing that? It just doesn't seem rational, right? It just seems like you're just causing yourself pain and harm. Mm. But I mean, it's, 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 it's really interesting. I don't think it's something that we should shy away from as well, even if you don't believe. I think it's important to kind of reflect on on the reality of the narrative that Christianity is, um, whether or not it is in of itself true. Um, and I kind of guess on that, on that note, Ruth, like, would you, do you, do you think there's, there's any way that you could see that the faith that you hold is just a hope in something rather than that substrate being actually there? Um, or is there, is there a genuine certainty within you, like a, you know, hundred percent or whatever sort of certainty, 95 I'm not asking you to put a number on it, um, but um, but like kind of would you would you would you kind of say that yeah that you can see how it could be perceived as just a hope, um, or would you say that it is firmly nailed to the substrate? That's such a good question. I mean, I guess it comes back to what I was saying before, which I think you know any apologist worth their salt would say that you can't 100% prove that God is true, just like you can't 100% prove that God is not true. Um, but I guess it's a little bit like um, if I was going to go and have an operation, um, I would be putting my faith in that surgeon sort of based on what I know. So actually, if it was a surgeon who had done hundreds of operations of, of what I was having before, I'd have much more faith than if it was someone who was like doing it for the first time. And so I, I don't think I have a blind faith. I think I have a faith that is based on certain truths and things like that. So, you know, from kind of historical truths to those things we were talking about earlier, the kind of various arguments that I, I don't think necessarily in and of themselves point to God, but that cumulatively point to God. Um, so, you know, things like, I think it was Isaac Newton actually that said of the design argument that actually in the absence of any other proof for God, the thumb alone would prove that God exists because of the kind of intricacy of of how the human thumb works. So I guess there's, there's kind of that element of it, this sort of academic, the more academic side of it. But I think, you know, there are certain people who, for whom that will be compelling reason enough so I know like for instance Alistair McGrath had a very rational conversion and then the kind of emotional side of it followed afterwards but I, 
my hunch is that most people aren't built that way. I think most people, I'm, I might be wrong on this, but my hunch is that most people have a bit more of an emotive conversion and actually they would probably pin it down to kind of personal experience. Um, and I guess for me, it's, it, it's true, I guess... It's true as far as I can say it's true, not not 100%. It's, it's true kind of historically speaking, rationally speaking, academically speaking. But I also think it's true in, in the sense that it makes the most sense of my life. Um, you know, it, it gives me the most kind of coherent way of explaining everything. Um, and I think I just don't know how I could rationalise away some of the things that I've seen and experienced and encountered and heard and I think particularly for me um, moments where like I've read something in the bible that it's like I've never read it before and I've you know I've read it tons of times before but it's like it it is speaking just to me Um, and I just don't know how I would kind of explain that stuff away as a coincidence I think you know there, there are certain things where you can explain it away as a coincidence but I think if it's consistently happening um you know coincidence after coincidence after coincidence I think perhaps it might just be true so I think I can't 100% say that it's true and I can definitively prove it um because you can't definitively prove all sorts of things can't prove that my husband loves me um but but I know that he does because of the way he acts and because he sort of entered into a lifelong commitment with me and I think the same is true of my relationship with God I can't 100% prove that he exists but actually from from what I've learned of his character and the way that we sort of interact with each other and um, and what my life has kind of looked like so far I would say that I'd say that it's I'd say that it's true that's really helpful. I mean, would you would you say that? Um, Trying to think of the best way to phrase this. So, someone who holds another faith um, from maybe from a different country, has been born and raised, um, who kind of feels all the same sorts of things you feel, has the same sort of experiences that reads, um, I don't know, let's go uh, with Islam. So they're kind of you know reading the Quran in 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 this sort of very devotional way, where they're experiencing um, Allah in this kind of um, intimate way, and they are kind of having all the same or similar things that you're having that they're believing they're seeing kind of healings and miracles and they're kind of having their faith confirmed consistently can you can you kind of see that also being true um as as well i know it's a bit of a tricky tr- a tricky question but kind of what, what what are your thoughts around that sort of element of like um obviously kind of i'm i'm i'm, I'm questioning whether god is real um, and you're saying that he is real and, and these are the sorts of things that you have but could you see how maybe this this other camp could have their own sort of interpretation of their god as well and, and actually from the position that i'm in i'm like well how do i know if this one's real and this one's not real or are they both real are neither of them real is it just hope like how do you how do you reconcile that totally you're right that is a really tricky question but I think um I would never ever delegitimize someone's experience whether that's um another religion or the kind of atheist experience because I think actually you know what's what's true for someone is is really true for them and and so I think you know you do hear the most incredible stories of um people experiencing things from other religions or from an atheist perspective or you know spirituality whatever it is um, but so I guess what what I would come back to is um, 
particularly if you're in a position of sort of agnosticism where you've sort of got everything out on the table and you're trying to figure out if it is true I think the best way to figure that out is just to kind of push push the doors and, and try those things so um is Os Guinness the apologist who says that contrast is the mother of clarity and actually I think often when you see the different worldviews side by side that's then when what whatever it is comes into clearer picture so like for instance if we were looking at the problem of suffering um because that's all I ever seem to be banging on about but if you look at, and and this is like gravely sort of um uh what's the word I'm I what am I trying to say it's like such a broad brushstroke that I'm clearly not going to be doing justice to any of these worldviews. But if you look from a sort of purely naturalistic perspective when you're looking at suffering, there's that sense in which um, like actually even asking the question why is to put kind of meaning on a meaningless world. So you've got that kind of Richard Dawkins, you know, we just are our genes and we're dancing to the sound of their music, or whatever. Um, and then if you look at kind of the Eastern religions, it's it's all about actually taking yourself out of the world. So Nirvana, that Buddhist concept of Nirvana is about kind of stripping yourself away from um, from from your feelings and your emotions and things like that. So um, actually, again, I'm not sure that's a workable solution, because how do we take ourselves out of the world and delegitimize everything that we sort of effectively are? And, and then also you've got the kind of reincarnational side of stuff when you, when you look at the um, Eastern religions, where it's just this perpetual suffering that kind of goes on and on. Um, that you can't really overcome uh, and then if you look at say Islam and, and kind of the question of suffering um, and actually in an Islamic perspective the word Islam literally means submission so there's that idea that like absolutely everything is submitted to Allah's will and he is the instigator of both the good and the evil and therefore if you're suffering you're suffering because he's willed it and so to kind of question your suffering is actually blasphemy so you kind of just have to um, you just have to sort of accept it and, and praise him for it and hope that he might take it away and be gracious to you. Um, but I just think actually when you sort of contrast all of that, that's when I do think the sort of Christian picture becomes so clear. Well, the Judeo-Christian picture becomes so clear of this God who, um, you know, it, it it, it, his his intention was was always good, but we messed it up. And actually that's where the bad stuff came into the world um but he also created the solution for the hope for the kind of healing of that through sort of his life death and resurrection so i think it's about kind of looking at it all and seeing what makes the most sense to you um and i would say that that for lots of that it is christianity but i would never ever delegitimize people's experiences within their worldviews because i think people genuinely have those experiences yeah yeah no I, I i i agree i think it's important for people to have the yeah, their experiences and go with that i think the thing that i find really interesting and and and, and hard about the kind of judo uh, judo christian um worldview and and god i guess is this sort of idea that we have um a god who loves individuals at least that's how th- the Christian message portrays it like God died for you the individual and if you're the only one on earth he would have done it for you I know lots of people don't believe that but a lot of people do also kind of spout that as as, as the gospel um which is fine I don't use the word spout in any negative connotation so apologies <laughs> that I came across negative um but this this sort of idea that God is all about you um and then also you kind of look at the bible and you look at how how God has revealed himself and the manner in which he has done so definitely seems to suggest a people group a a collective a community of sort of um 
believers, followers, disciples, um, a, a people called and chosen from the whole vastness of, of humanity and you, you, you will be my people and I, I am with you. And th- th- yeah, as you mentioned, us or people screwing up consistently. Um, and then, you know, God always being the one to kind of re- reconcile that. But I mean, I guess the, the, the Christian narrative, especially with the kind of the, 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 the Jewish element seems to be about a people rather than an, an, an individual. So how do you kind of, um, how do you kind of bring those two together? And I guess, cause I kind of, I, I, what I hear a lot of the time from Christians, I don't think this is necessarily anything to do with you, but um, a lot of Christians will talk about how they feel God is or how they experience God or what God means to them. Um, but very, very rarely do we kind of hear how God is for us as a group and how he's going to work through us and interact past us. And I think this is this is something that David and me mentioned very, very early on in the podcast is this idea that um, I see a lot of people who are feeling very happy with their beliefs and they're feeling very comfortable and that's great. But I don't see groups of people who are actively doing amazing things and showing God's love to the world. Um, and this sort of idea that the church that we are expecting to be the, 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 the pinnacle of God's desire for humanity to be restored, his bride, is is broken and dirty and is, is unable to ever get anywhere near doing enough. And I'm not saying they, they need to be, but you just expect... The bride to be at least off the floor but it seems to be on the, on the floor struggling to move <laughs> um you expect you know okay maybe crawling like i could do a crawling let's let's just get to crawling but i kind of feel like you know the church seems to be struggling a lot so how do you kind of like i guess reconcile the the individual element and the group element and and, and bring those back together i think that's a great question um and i don't know that there's a kind of easy answer for that i think you've touched on something really important here though which is that i think Perhaps it's particularly in the culture that we're in and the kind of 21st century and all of that. Um, I think we have effectively, for want of a better word, like bastardized what the church was meant to be and turned it into this um, sort of individualistic me, 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 or, you know, what I feel um, how I experience God and I'm sorry because I've been saying that the whole way through as well so I'm definitely guilty of that but I don't I don't think it was ever meant to be that you know you've touched on some of the amazing stuff that the early church was doing which is very much not individualistic and very much at the cost of themselves but for the sake of the community and I think when you look at when you look at the Bible, that's that's the way it was meant to be. It was never meant to be individualistic. Yes, there's stories of individuals meeting with God and experiencing God, but that was always so that they could kind of bless their community. And I think you're right. Um, you know, it was a chosen people. And when you look particularly at the kind of Old Testament and the trajectory of this chosen people who were um taken by God and constantly like forgiven and given another chance and all of that. Yes, that's about the chosen people, but it was never just meant to be about that one group. It was always, you're my chosen people, but you are to take this to the nations. Um, And I think you certainly, you see that in the Old Testament, but you certainly see that in the New Testament, you know, with the kind of breaking down of the divisions between the, the Jews and the Gentiles and Jesus coming to break down those walls and Paul coming to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, even though he was a Jew. Um, So I think... I think that's where we've messed it up, actually. I think that's where we've like veered so far from the gospel, which we've done in so many ways. But I think we've certainly done it in the way that we've individualized stuff and not, yeah, not done what we were meant to be doing, which is to kind of bring hope and healing to our communities rather than 
I, I just think we, we so often as well, this is a tangent, but I think we we so often confuse Christianity with middle classness. And um, I think, you know, we've made Christianity this kind of nice, let's drink tea and talk about our emotions and um, talk about how good we are and, and what we're doing to save the world. And actually, it's not meant to be that like church is meant to be getting our hands dirty. Like Pope Francis said, didn't he, that the um, shepherds should smell of the sheep and actually if we're not out in our communities trying to bring hope then quite frankly what are we doing like either you believe it's true or if you or you don't and if you believe it's true why are you not why are you not sharing that hope with the people around you who might might never hear it otherwise yes yeah, this is such a such a fascinating thing i think this is this is for me it's like one of the things like if 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 i come back to a faith in god one day is this is the like what does church look like in in that place because i kind of look around me and i i mean this isn't me mean to be rude to any christian listeners or or, or, or to you ruth it's this i i don't see the i don't see the christ that you confess within the church that you attend um and and like when i read about these ancient accounts of 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 plagues that would ransack um Greek villages and the Christians wouldn't leave. Everyone would just run to the hills, but the Christians mm-hmm. would stay. And the people who were sick and suffering and dying would just literally grab hold and go, "Why? Why are you here? What? What is your reason for being here?" And they're basically because there's something bigger than myself, and I'm here to serve you in this. And then Christians would die doing that. Like it wasn't like there's some sort of miraculous, like I'm okay, I've got God. Like no, no, they would they would literally die. Um, doing this and sure some of them would survive and the stories would continue and things but there's this idea of complete and utter sacrificial love following the one who gave it all if you believe that jesus is god um and you're going to go to this place where you're able to i mean that 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 this is that really excites me so that i can get on board with this is sort of like dietrich bonhoeffer i'm, I'm aware he tried to kill hitler some people think <laughs> some some people say that's that's not okay but i I kind of think it is um but um basically um he you know he he gave everything he could because he he believed that um that the the christian message needed to be preached and he preached against the sort of catholic church who were very much kind of um confirming or affirming a lot of the things that 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 the nazis were doing during world war ii and you know his his outspokenness against the against the nazi regime meant that he got locked up and you know a week or so before um before the 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 allies managed to uh, liberate the concentration camp that he was in or the or the war camp that he was in um essentially and um, they just tried to kill everybody and they just you know walked them out naked um, got a piece of wire like a really thin piece of wire and just hung them and there's this um there's this amazing kind of um quote from this um from this nazi historian who's, who's looking on as, as bonhoeffer naked goes to his knees prays to his god gets up goes to the goes to the noose and and just dies and it's this it's this incredible account of someone who has complete trust knowing they're going to go through some horrific pain and have been through some horrific pain, but has complete trust in their God and what their God is about and this restoration, this purpose, this meaning, this this truth that no matter what someone else is saying is more important, no matter what happens to you. Like, for me, that just like, I'm, you can probably tell I'm getting excited, like that is incredible and I want that to be true, but I don't see that in the church and, you know, I'm maybe I've just not looked hard enough and maybe I'm missing something, but there just seems to be these gems throughout history of where you think, is this real? Like, is, is, is God here moving? And then you kind of lose it again. It kind of gets all dark and misty and confusing. And then, you know, someone else comes along and you're like, oh my goodness, this person did this thing. And, and, you know, and then you hear like, this one was probably a fable, this one was fake or stuff, but there are still these ones that we know are true. And, and that really excites me. So I, I can kind of see how, and um, people can hope, but I'm I'm sad to say that I don't see that today.
Yeah, and I think that's particularly a problem in the West, isn't it? I wonder if we see that a little bit more with sort of the persecuted church in places like North Korea and things like that, where like it is a, a question of life and death. Um, and because the stakes are high, you know, it, it's really important for them because like they're, they're saying this knowing that it's true, but also knowing that they could be killed for it. Whereas I think because it's so comfortable to be a Christian, in well particularly in the UK but you know all over the west that actually we're so lukewarm um and so comfortable with it and yeah you know there's not a lot of taking up the cross and uh, like actually sacrificing ourselves for the sake of our communities and for the particularly for the broken and the marginalized and you know the people on the edges of society like I live right next to Feltham Young Offenders Institute um and you know, who's, I mean, there are lots of amazing Christians, probably not in the pandemic, but there are lots of amazing Christians going in there and sort of speaking hope and truth to those kids that a lot of the world have kind of forgotten about and sort of thinks deserve to be in there. But actually they know that it's a cycle of brokenness that isn't necessarily their fault. And even if it is their fault and they sort of purposefully, maliciously did those acts, like actually God's grace is big enough, his love is big enough. And um, and actually that's the message we should be speaking. I think people have heard enough of judgment and all of that. Like People know they're messed up. They don't need to hear that. They need to hear that there's a better story, that God um, loves them and cares about them. And even when the world has rejected them, he hasn't. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree, actually. Um, I think, you know, I, I have no issue with, with Christians going in and sharing the message because my big thing is if, if this is real, then it should be talked about. And even if it's not real, we should at least understand why people believe it's real. Um, mm. I think yeah, this this idea that kind of Christianity shouldn't be taught in schools or, you know, we should shut everything down because we, you know, it's, it's not, you know, scientifically backed. Like there's loads of things that aren't scientifically backed that we still, uh, we still live in, uh, sorry, live by and, uh, and, and, and enjoy. Um, this, this has been really interesting. I think kind of if, if, if people wanted to um, to go deeper in this sort of stuff, Ruth, what, what sort of resources would you be pointing them to? Oh, that's a great question. What in terms of the kind of living sacrificially, that kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I guess a lot of the stuff you touched on, like the kind of stories of like people in the past, like I think a lot of Christian biographies um, would talk about things like that. Um so, you know, like your Jackie Chans and your Corrie Ten Booms and, and people like that. Um, but I also think there are lots of brilliant... I, I, you're absolutely right, the church is useless. And I say church with a capital C because I'm including all of us in that. The church as a whole in England is useless, but there are kind of pockets of people doing amazing things. And I think because... Um, I've spent so long like in the youth work world I think generally youth workers are a little bit better at doing this and there are some amazing organizations like The Message in Manchester who um, they have these things called the Eden Projects where you um, sort of intentionally move on to an estate and basically just love and care for your community and they um, they build churches but they also build like whatever else is needed on that estate so if it's a medical centre they'll do that and they'll train people up as nurses or they'll get nurses in to sort of move into the estate um, so there are some brilliant people doing things like that but yeah to be honest I think reading stories of like martyr so fox's book of martyrs you know all the kind of classics of people that have really gone above and beyond and um 
and just hearing stories of like actual sacrifice but people that are doing it now around particularly not the west but you know particularly in other countries who are just living sacrificially there are some people in the west doing it sort of living in community and like serving their community um a, a lot of the time they're in more economically deprived areas i once heard um andy hawthorne who um is the head of the message trust in manchester say that often historically speaking when you see a move of god um it's it's often been in a kind of economically deprived area because i mean he couldn't really say why but but he was sort of speculating that he wondered if it was because people were just a little bit more open and in some senses um they have less kind of comfortable things around them to like um shield them from stuff and so they're just a bit more open to kind of what god is doing he then sort of joked that there was just this blip of the alpha um of yeah the alpha movement which clearly is not at all sort of in the economically deprived area being in kensington in london um but that actually other than the alpha course and all the great stuff that the alpha course is doing often when you look at like really profound moves of god it's been in quite poor areas um because god seems to really do something in those areas when people's hearts are kind of already broken and just desperate and and god it's not that god cares more about those people he cares you know passionately about everyone but i think sometimes perhaps those people are just a little bit more ready to engage with those questions and um and to receive without having to like get rid of all the baggage because there's not a lot to get rid of in some senses yeah and i mean you know if 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 your god is real like he literally started his whole thing off um in first century palestine which is a was a very deprived um and still is in 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 quite a lot of ways area of, of a group of people looking around going where is this uh where is this god that was going to liberate us from our oppressors who are now oppressing us in our own land um which is a very powerful powerful metaphor i think um okay mm-hmm. amazing and ruth if people wanted to get in touch with you and kind of um reach out and 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 yeah and ask you some questions maybe you'll kind of hear more about your story what would be the best way for them to do that um so i guess they might hear bits of me on the unbelievable podcast but i'm often in the background of that so maybe not but you can you can find out more about the unbelievable podcast if you just google unbelievable podcast it should come up um i'm on most social medias just um at ruth j jackson uh yeah at ruth j jackson yeah i think that's my handle for most of them we'll just google uh, there's actually do you know what there's a lot of ruth jackson so i was gonna say just google ruth jackson but since i got married which was a long time ago like eight years ago um but my major name was very original and difficult to spell but there was no other ruth mcgarrahans but ruth jackson is they're, they're to a penny there's just lots of ruth jacksons all over the place so yeah i mean you could google me you might find way more interesting ruth jacksons than me It'd be funny if someone just starts like a random conversation about God. They're like, who the hell is this person that's messaging me about God? <laughs> um, I'll, 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 well, I'll definitely have links to kind of like, you know, Twitter and, and Instagram and all those sorts of things in the in the show notes. So listener, yeah, please, please look down. Um, Rufy, is there anything you kind of want to say that I might have missed or that you feel like you want to answer or, 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 or chat through before we call it? I guess I just want to thank you for your honesty um in delving into these questions because I so appreciate the way that you have these conversations with people I know like a lot of the stuff that you're sort of encountering and grappling with must be really hard to be doing even by yourself but to be doing it kind of in front of people and um oh yeah I so appreciate what you're doing and I guess if I was to 
just trying to think like when people ask me why it is like what's the kind of fundamental reason that you believe and I don't believe um I think for me it's it's about hope and I think that's come to the fore even more so in the midst of the pandemic and I don't think it is this kind of nebulous you can't explain it um it just sort of pie in the sky hope I think it really is that sort of deep um, peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of absolute destruction where you know chaos is rain, raging around you but somehow you feel this kind of again it comes back to feeling but but feel this peace that just doesn't rationally make sense um, because you know you've got someone walking alongside with you and I guess that for me has been the experience of my life that even in like the crappiest moments where everything has completely fallen apart um I know that I'm not alone and that I've got someone walking alongside the journey with me. And I know that that's not the end of the story, that actually there is a hope and it is a deep hope and um, and it's a hope that won't let me go. Amazing. Ruth, it's been so good to have you on the show. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Sam. And yeah, thank you for doing this. You're a total legend. Well, there we go and I hope you enjoyed that episode. This is just to say that you can find links to us on social media, Patreon, or the blog directly below. We would absolutely love to hear from you as your comments and suggestions help to drive this podcast forwards. So please reach out. And until next time, this is Sam signing off for When Belief Dies. Belief Dies.